The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he is also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thanks. And yourself? Doing well, Father. Yeah, good to see you. Yes, absolutely. Father, great to be back again. <clears throat> we have a lot of fun emails this week, uh, so I'd like to get through as many of these as we could. I apologize to all of our viewers. We have a uh, serious uh, cache of emails in the inbox, so um, I'd like to try and get through some tonight. Father? You said you have a serious cache. These aren't the serious ones? These are the fun ones. <laughs> These are some fun ones. Oh, I see. There's a little bit of both, though. It's a good, well, mix, good mixture. Sounds interesting. Yes, Father. Um, before we get into the fun, though, I, mm -hmm. I would ask everyone to pray for those who are ill. Uh, pray for a little baby who's born with a a lethal syndrome, and uh, is not expected to last very long. Please pray for her and her parents. And there are so many others who need your prayers and would appreciate them and reward them by offering uh, their prayers for you and also remember you and the sacrifices they have to make also. Uh, especially during Lent, it's very important to perform that spiritual work of mercy to pray for those in need. So please do so. Yes. Thank you, Father. Okay, our first email, Father, a viewer writes in and says, because of their horrific alien appearance and often appalling actions, insects and reptiles seem to be created by Satan rather than by God. But because only God can create, we know that these vile animals were created by God. But Father, I ask you to speculate whether these creatures have always been so demonic or if they became so only after the fall. Either way, how could God allow such foul creatures to exist? Might they be meant as graphic reminders of hell and its demons? He says it seems prudent to adopt a default position of distrust towards anyone who likes insects or reptiles. After all, our tastes say much about us. The fly is repulsive to ordered souls, not only because of its hideous appearance, but even more so because of its vile tastes. So what do you say about this, Father? Insects and reptiles. Well, it's a, an interesting thought. I'm sure there are people uh, who would echo the, the thoughts of this individual. Um, but um, there, are, there are a number of questions contained here. Um, and um, it's true that nature did uh, experience uh, disorder that, that came in with the fall of Adam and Eve, mostly Adam, because he is the head of the race, was really the one who... Uh, although Eve committed the first sin, Adam was the one who committed original sin, properly speaking, that affected the entire human race to this day. Um, and so there was a disorder that came into the world, no doubt about it. Um, it was, was the fly uh, actually glorious and beautiful uh, when it was first created, and did it adopt its present look after, the, uh, after original sin came into the world? Well... That's doubtful. 
You know, the, uh, the writer asks about demonic, the demonic appearance. Well, re remember, when you're talking about devils, fallen angels, well, the angels have no bodies to begin with. Um, so the fly couldn't resemble a, 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 fall, a fallen angel. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Demons are condemned souls. But again, condemned souls separated from the body do not have matter. They have a, a desire to be reunited with matter because that's natural to us. Our souls were made to be united with matter. Uh, and therefore, they, they seek control, even possession of uh, the body of a living person. Uh, but the, they're demons, fallen souls, and they, they consider that to be the natural state for them, to be united with matter. But unto themselves, I mean, the souls do not have any shape, don't have any, um, I should say, dimensions. Of, uh, when, they, when they leave the body, right, they, um, they're souls. Uh, they take whatever shape or dimensions they have from the body that they, they inform. But... Um, as far as uh, the fly, the fly, and the other vile insects you talk about, remember that they do, uh, as creatures of God, reflect His own perfections in some very significant ways. Uh, they have existence, and existence is the first of its first act. It has the first, the first uh, of the perfections to actually span the, the infinite chasm between non-being and being. So they have the, the existence <clears throat> that God's will gives them. And that is a great perfection, the first of them all. And um, they, they look hideous to us, perhaps because of the fall, we see them as hideous because we see them as dangerous. They would have become dangerous to us because of the fall. If we feel threatened by them, and perhaps, you know, our instinct tells us to, to find them repulsive because we feel threatened with them by them because we are, due to original sin, now we are threatened by nature that has turned against us because we've turned against God. <clears throat> so uh, they might not have always appeared that way. Maybe they did, but if they did, then they didn't appear, always appear that way to us. Remember, Adam and Eve saw things very differently after the fall. And things that they saw as manifesting God's perfections, um, they now saw as very threatening to them and hostile and perhaps uh, even vile and ugly to, as a means of defending against them and uh, trying to avoid them. Um, in any case, uh, but I mean, if one looks at it merely, look at even, a, even a housefly, looks at a, a housefly or even a microbe, uh, just through the eyes of a philosopher or a theologian, uh, they're wondrous. They're wondrously complex, and therefore wondrously beautiful from that point of view. But that's not our, let's say, default point of view. There's no no doubt about it. Does God see these th these things as being ugly and hideous? <clears throat> if they are deformed from what He created them. Um, then he might see, uh, you know, they might not reflect the beauty that they did before the fall. But nonetheless, um, they still have to manifest somehow at least vestiges of even divine perfections to exist. Uh, even Lucifer, I mean, as, as ugly as he, as he is, he still maintains 
um, the perfection of existence. He just hasn't passed away to non-existence. So he has that perfection, which is considerable, obviously. <clears throat> but he, he still has the perfections of the angelic nature itself um, and the powers of the angelic nature. Um, unfortunately, it's disordered now because of perversion of his will. Um, so the, you know, the angels, even fallen angels, can appear to us, and they can appear as angels of light. We know that from sacred scripture. They can appear in a very attractive way, but that's really only adopted by them. It's like a disguise they put on, right? Uh, so, um, but if we were to see, from a spiritual point of view, if we were to see, for example, through the eyes of our guardian angels, um, then there would be no disguising Lucifer in the corruption of what he's done to himself. He, had, he had, cannot destroy his nature as God made it. No creature has the power to destroy its own nature as God made it. But they can pervert it and disorder it by uh, a disordered will. And um, that's what uh, the fallen angels have done. That's what the demons have done. Uh, you can't say the fly disordered himself or anything by his, dis by his disordered will because the fly does not have the power of will. Mm -hmm. It only has an appetite. Okay, so you can't blame the poor fly right? um, uh, for impressing us as being very, very ugly. Mm -hmm. okay. um, and as far as the fly goes, uh, when the fly sees us with all of its eyes, it doesn't see us as being ugly. <laughs> doesn't even know the difference, doesn't know the category. It just uh, spots what is appetizing to its appetite, right? Mm -hmm. So if the fly or the, or the mosquito sees you as appetizing, it's not because it perceives you as beautiful. It just sees, perceives you as being useful. <laughs> okay, but beauty, is, uh, beauty really sees order, and it, it delights. Uh, in other words, the human will sees goodness, and we, we are made in our souls to delight in what is beautiful, and what is beautiful is something ordered. And we perceive disorder in things, we perceive that they are uh, ugly. And that is unless you're Paul the Sixth. Unless you're Paul the Sixth, if you, if, you, if you go through his collection of art that he enjoyed, that he, that he found very, very uh, striking and, uh, I guess, beautiful in a very strange sort of way, um, to anyone else who has, who has any, um, any sense of order uh, left in his soul, these things are absolutely hideous. If you want to see what I'm talking about, go through the, this, the Vatican Museums, go, through the, go to the Sistine Chapel, get through the Sistine Chapel, and then go see the private art collection of Paul VI, and tell me if it isn't absolutely horrid and, and devilish and hellish even. Um, for that matter, just go up to St. Peter's Basilica, right? You know, the portico in front of the basilica. Look at the central doors, the doors through which people are exiting the basilica. Take a good look at those doors. They were put there by John the 23rd. There's also a set of doors, I think, put there by Paul VI as well. And again, tell me if they don't offense, offend every sense of order and beauty that, that, is, that you have as a human being. Even we as, 
as fallen human beings, uh, sinful human beings, we still maintain a sense of beauty in what we see is ordered. When we look at these, the artwork of the Novus Ordo, notably John the Twenty-Third and Paul the Sixth, but others too, we see that 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 artwork is it glorifies the weird, the twisted, the hideous, and that that's a reflection of the soul. So, uh, but anyway, uh, that we've strayed a little bit far from the the fly. Uh, we've come to the Lord of the Flies, the Lord of the Flies, Beelzebub, and that's what we're looking at when we see the art of the modernists. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Then let's change topics, Father. A viewer uh, writes in and asks if uh, we have an obligation to continue seeing family members who have abused us in one way or another just because they are family. Can we forgive them and make the choice to not see them? Or as excluding them from our lives, a sin against charity. Well, because they've offended you, you're not allowed to see them as insects. You can't see them as a repulsive fly and just avoid them at all costs. You still have to love them, right? Um, you can't bear them ill will. You can't bear a grudge against them. You can't hate them. Uh, you still have to will their good, right? It might be necessary to stay away because you find them an occasion of sin because you have a hard time dealing with them dealing with them. Maybe that's the lesser of two evils, to avoid them, but it's still an evil. The ideal thing would be to still um, be available to help them in any way, be kind to them, uh, at least send them cards, you know, and greetings of, of, for their birthdays and anniversaries and so on. Uh, let them know you bear them no ill will. Um, and uh, if you're invited, go. If you think you can go without... Uh, getting into trouble, right, or causing trouble. Uh, if you can invite them, do so. If you think you can invite them without trouble. But if the relationships, the relation between you is so strained that it actually tries your patience and tries their patience, and you find that you tend to lose that patience with them when you're around them, then the lesser of two evils would be to uh, avoid their company, but still go out of your way to let them know that you do love them and you are praying for them um, and that you lament the situation uh, prevailing, but sometimes it's a matter of just facing reality. Okay. Ideally, I mean, everybody would be strong enough, patient enough to be able to deal with these things gracefully, but not everybody is, right? I think we can testify to that. That's right. That's <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Father, is Supreme Court nominee Katanji Browns Jackson's refusal to define the word woman on the grounds that she is, quote, not a biologist, any different from Catholics refusing to define John the Twenty Third all the way up through Francis as, quote, heretics on the grounds that they are not canon lawyers, cardinals, or some other church authority? Okay, let me see if I, I follow. <clears throat> so we have a situation. Katanji Brown has been nominated by uh, Resident Biden for the Supreme Court, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and she was asked um, whether or not, uh, what a woman is, mm -hmm. to define woman. And she said she couldn't define woman because she wasn't a biologist. Right. Okay. And we're comparing that to uh, traditional Catholics who cannot um, come to the conclusion, the firm conclusion, I guess, 
that uh, Francis and so on are not true popes because they're not canon lawyers. And they're looking for an equivalence there? Yeah. Okay, I got it right then. Well, <clears throat> there is a difference, yes. There is a difference because uh, um, the idea of being able to define what a woman is is not the same as the knowledge of canon law. Um, I mean, the idea of coming to the conclusion that Francis is not the Pope is a logical and theological process, right? right. And um, so it's, it's more than just a matter of canon law. Uh, canon law itself will not answer that question. Uh, theology won't answer that question entirely either. Uh, Catholic tradition can certainly answer that question or help answer that question. But you see, even if one was able to make an airtight logical case or theological case based on Catholic tradition and canon law and so on, um, still, the, uh, the, the statement that a pope, this Francis is not a pope, is, uh, is not a matter of biology, obviously, right? It's a matter of whether he has an office, ever received it, or has it, or lost it, right? And that's a rather complex matter. It's much more complex to answer the question, um, to address the question of whether Francis is a pope, than it is to answer the question whether Hillary Clinton is a woman. Well, maybe they're, maybe it's not so difficult, different. But anyway, uh, that you have to um, not only know a lot, but you have to be able to reason the process through. And then when you're done, you have to realize you can't really claim the authority to answer the question for everybody. Um, but the question of whether uh, Ketanji Brown can define what a woman is is more, that's more than a matter of biology. That's just a matter of, you know, what is, what is natural. To, I mean, she is, she can't even define, she couldn't even tell you if she's a woman at this point. You know, you ask her, well, you can't define woman. Um, can you say that you are a woman? And she might say, well, yes, I'm a woman. I'd say, well, how do you know that? You know, what, what, you'd have to define woman and say, I'm one of them. You know what I mean? A standard of judging one's, oneself, you know. Or how could you decide that somebody is not a woman? You know, um, would you say that Joe Biden is a woman? And she might say, "Well, I'm not a biologist; I couldn't possibly tell you." Um, but if she did venture a guess and suggest that Joe Biden was not a woman, she could be setting herself up for lawsuits, probably, and even calling him by the wrong pronoun. So you see, that's all insanity. Uh, it's simply a matter of being rational and. Uh, and, uh, you know, being honest, let's face it. So, um, you know, uh, she was just being evasive. She didn't want to get into it. And I suppose she thought that no matter what I say, somebody's going to object. And that's true. Because, like her, liberals and progressives and leftists, they don't believe in what is naturally true. They actually pervert everything. Right? Even the de definition of what, what a woman is. They probably don't even believe there is such a thing as a definition of what a woman is, because being a woman is very fluid, and it depends on 
you know, how you're identifying at any given moment. That's in their mind that makes you a woman. Unless she answered like that, then uh, she probably feared that her constituents would turn against her and uh, cancel her. But in any case, Tom, uh, there is a difference between these two things. Um, I mean, one might say, well, I'm, I'm much more certain that Francis is not a pope than I am that Hillary Clinton is a woman. One could try to argue that point, and uh, I suppose maybe successfully so these days, as far as certitude goes. But um, th there, it's still a fi fact that Francis not being the Pope is a matter of a logical process, or a theological process, based upon Catholic tradition, arguing from what the Church has taught us through Catholic tradition, um, and coming to a conclusion which is one's own conclusion. And if someone disagrees with that person, that person can say, well, you're, you're being illogical or ill-theological. Your reasoning process is wrong. There's something wrong with your facts, or there's something wrong with the principles you're using to judge them. So you're coming to the wrong conclusion because you disagree with me. So because you disagree with my, my conclusion, uh, I, I can say, I believe you're wrong, I believe you're being illogical, but I can't say, therefore, you're not a Catholic because you don't agree with me. Because you don't have the authority to bind my conscience to agree with your conclusion. Um, I once had a, a priest who I thought was actually rather intelligent in many ways, uh, still think so, but he, he told me that uh, John Paul II's non-papacy is a dogmatic fact. And so, I, I knew what a dogmatic fact was, but I wasn't sure that what he thought was a dogmatic fact is what I thought, you know. And so I asked him, well, what do you mean by dogmatic fact? And he simply waved at a, a shelf of books, and he said, oh, it's over there somewhere. And that was it. Very disappointing. I thought we'd have some kind of, you know, in, discussion, intelligent discussion, but clearly he wasn't interested in discussing it, and just kind of waving it off. That's often what, uh, what people do, you know. Um, and so they're not really not so much interested in the truth, at least they think they have the truth and uh, what you have to say doesn't count and they don't want to talk about it with you. <clears throat> but in any case, um, if the question is simply, is there a difference? Yes, there is a difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Father, our next email, there's a series of questions. Um, so I thought I could just read through them. We can backtrack if need needed, uh, but if you were asked, what is the essence of a pope or the papacy? Is it not to preserve and protect sacred tradition for the salvation of souls? If he is not going to preserve and protect, protect sacred tradition, what is he doing there? Can he be there and not do these things? And if he's not protecting sacred tradition, are we obliged to follow him? Also, who determines he is not following sacred tradition? Does sacred tradition determine that fact? Uh, Father, can you answer any of these questions? Oh, well, uh, last I counted, we got up to six <laughs> yeah, questions. Exactly. Six or seven questions there. Yeah. Uh, well, we can start with the first one. Father. Well, why don't we take them one by one? What is, what is the essence of a pope or the papacy? The essence of the pope, of a pope or the papacy. Well, actually, a pope is somebody who has the office of the papacy, right? <laughs> a pope is somebody who holds the, the office of the papacy as the vicar of Christ on earth, and juridically, the, the bishop of Rome, and so on, has... Jurisdiction over all the faithful on the face of the earth, right? 
all the baptized faithful on the face of the earth. So uh, that's who a pope is. Okay. And the papacy, of course, is the the office that Christ established on Peter. He conferred it on Peter when he told Peter, "You feed my lambs, you feed my sheep." He constituted him as the man who would uh, represent our Lord and be Christ's vicar as the shepherd of the flock of the faithful here on, on earth. So it's a very, very definite uh, office with very definite powers, which the church herself has defined, which I should say, sacred tradition has defined. Okay. Uh, then the next question, Father, is the essence of the papacy not to preserve and protect sacred tradition for the salvation of souls? Well, the essence of the papacy includes that. That is the, the responsibility of the Pope. That's his office, uh, his, his munus muneris, I guess they would say, uh, requires him to do that, to protect sacred tradition. When our Lord said he would send the Holy Ghost, he said he would send him not to reveal new doctrines, but that he would uh, call to mind whatever he, our Lord Jesus Christ, had taught them. Right? The apostles. So uh, that is to say that he would keep them on the track, the, the track of the true faith that Christ himself had revealed. Um, so the popes are not successors of Christ, the successors of Peter. Peter was not the successor of Christ, he was the, only the vicar of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so it must be with the pope. Mm -hmm. He's only the vicar of Christ. Um, but his mission is then to confirm the brethren in the faith. That's the first mission, right? The, to keep them in the faith, in the truth that Christ himself had taught. Mm -hmm. okay. And that um, involves, of course, the enlightenment of the Holy Ghost. That's the mission of the Holy Ghost um, in the life of a pope, actually. It's supposed to, to enable him to do that, to confirm the brethren in the faith, and to keep the faith whole, entire, and integral, the teaching of the faith, for the truth of the faith, and condemning uh, what is inimical to the faith, condemning errors against the faith. Okay. This is first, first John. Father, if a pope is not going to preserve and protect sacred tradition, what is he doing there? He's being a very bad person. I mean, if he's really a pope, okay, if he really is a pope, then obviously he's failing Christ. He's failing the faithful. And he is setting himself up for a terrible judgment because of his failure. But it is possible for him to be an actual legitimate pope and not uphold sacred tradition? There are popes who have not... Well, there are two different questions, I think. I noticed that when she's asking, there are popes who have not upheld sacred tradition because they simply didn't do what they were supposed to do. But they didn't take any positive action against sacred tradition. They just didn't teach the truth. They let error grow. Uh, pope Honorius I is an example of that. Pope Honorius I, uh, who reigned about the year 640, right, late 630s and so on, Pope Honorius I has always been considered to this day a true Roman pontiff. I don't know that anybody has questioned that, ever, that he was a valid pope, and yet he failed miserably to defend the faith. Um, there was a, a heresy at the time, which was very virulent in the East. And uh, the Patriarch of Constantinople was faced with it among the populace of that area. Uh, the heresy denied the operation of our Lord's human will. 
So it essentially said that Jesus Christ, as God, could will the crucifixion, but as man, he could not or did not. This is a heresy. It takes uh, basically the humanity of Christ out of the crucifixion, his willingness to suffer the crucifixion for us as God and man. So it would undo the Catholic understanding of the redemption wrought on the cross. And so this was a very serious matter. It was incumbent upon bishops and the Pope, well, it was incumbent on everyone to fight it. Every Catholic had to resist this error. Uh, but uh, the Patriarch of Constantinople was a man named Sergius. We talked about this before. And Sergius decided that it would be much better to avoid conflict and controversy um, <clears throat> by coming up with some statement of faith which was so ambiguous that everybody could say the same words, but they wouldn't mean the same thing. But he thought that would smooth things over and keep, keep the lid on this. Um, and so that's what he did. He, he fabricated a, a, a statement of faith, a credo, that they could pray. And it was so ambiguous, so unclear, that the Catholics could say it, and the heretics could say it. And um, the, called the monophysites, monothelites at the time. So anyway, um, well, there was a bishop in the East, actually in Jerusalem. His name was Sophronius. He understood what was going on. I think he received the probably uh, mes message of this statement of faith. And uh, he recognized that this is an abomination. This is heterodox in the eyes of the church and could not be allowed. So he contacted the Pope, Honorius, uh, in Rome. And Honorius's reaction was to say, well, this is divisive. We simply won't talk about this. And so he, he gave the order that this must not be discussed. Everyone must studiously avoid talking about this. Exactly the wrong answer, right? The emperor liked the idea because, again, he was interested in peace. He didn't like this conflict in the people. So, uh, so he backed up Honorius's decree with a decree of his own, uh, exacting pretty serious civil penalties for violating the Pope's order of silence in the face of heresy. Well, of course, the heretics didn't really pay much attention. Uh, the Catholics at first did, though. You know, they, their first instinct is to, to obey. Uh, but, um, of course, they couldn't. They couldn't in good conscience. Um, and so there were, there were popes and priests and no doubt lay people who spoke out. Uh, not only violating or defying the pope's command, direct command, but defying the emperor's command. In other words, it was not only, I guess, considered to be a breach of obedience to Honorius, it was considered to be illegal and a crime by the emperor. And so he would actually <clears throat> seize people, uh, confiscate their goods, uh, cast them in prison. Uh, in the case of uh, St. Maximus the Great, uh, I mean, he was sent into exile as an old man and, and died in exile, basically being worked for that in a death camp. It was like a concentration camp. And um, so, uh, but Sophronius in Jerusalem uh, spoke out very boldly against the heresy and, and defied, he actually defied both the emperor and the, uh, and the Pope Honorius I. He defied the pope, a man who was a sitting pope, recognized the sitting pope then and now. <clears throat> the church canonized him for doing that. 
The church considered him, Sophronius, to this day a saint. And he's on the calendar of saints of the church, and so is St. Maximus the Confessor. St. Maximus the Confessor, whom I mentioned earlier, St. Maximus the Great. St. Maximus the Confessor also is considered to be a martyr for standing up for the faith, even though in the process he was actually defying a direct order from the, from the Holy See, the Pope, and uh, the Emperor also. So uh, this is a prime example of, of a Pope who did not defend the faith. He didn't teach the error formally, but he didn't defend the faith. And that was considered a horrible crime. Uh, in fact, uh, by the end of that century, uh, just about 40 years later, at a general council of the church, St. Leo II, I think it was, uh, actually condemned not only the heretics who were teaching the, the heresy, but actually lumped with him Sergius, the patriarch of Constantinople, who came up with that ambiguous statement of faith, and Honorius, and lumped him together with them as, as the heretic, one of the heretics because he failed a, a solemn obligation to defend the faith as the Pope. Um, so, um, yeah, it's possible to be a Pope and not to stand up for the faith. A Pope can be delinquent that way, and, a, and in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the Church, a criminal. In fact, um, in, 19, in, in the 680s, um, the church formally excommunicated Honorius, who died about the year 640, 642 or something like that, uh, or some, about the year 640, and uh, formally excommunicated him, <clears throat> even though he's not been taken off the role of, of the popes. But when you have a pope who actually teaches something against the faith and takes formal or positive action to attack the faith, that's a different matter. Can a man like that be the Pope? That's, that, well, that's a question that theologians, doctors of the, of the Church, um, spiritual writers have discussed for some time now. But interesting enough, I think all or virtually all of them recognize that as a possibility that a man who is the Pope could actually turn on the faith and attack the faith and speak against the faith, uh, can even speak heresies, can even be a, become a manifest heretic. Uh, it's, it's a possibility that the Church acknowledges. <clears throat> and the question is, well, would a man who did such a thing become a manifest heretic? Could a man like that be, be the Pope? And there were very powerful voices within the Church, very highly respected Catholic voices that say, no, a man like that could not actually be the Pope. Mm -hmm. okay? Now, they might disagree on how one would determine that, you know. Um, but the fact is they acknowledge that it could happen. And um, in a case like that, I mean, to acknowledge it formally by the whole church would be one thing. For the individual Catholic, though, to, to realize this man is teaching heresy, and uh, this is an open question, and recognized as such by the church in her history. And there are great Catholic churchmen who have taught that this would disqualify them from the papacy because they've lost the faith. And... Um, so that it's, it's perfectly legitimate as a Catholic to say, I believe uh, sincerely that this man is teaching uh, something that is actually heretical. And it's manifest. He's making no secret of it, right? It's very public. And that as far as I'm concerned, he might well be or is definitely not the Pope. 
my own, my own personal conclusion, kind of following up on what the previous question was, mm-hmm. too. But nobody has the right to stand up and say, that's my conclusion, and therefore I'm making it a dogma of faith, that I'm right. Anybody who disagrees with me is, is not wrong, and they've defected from the faith because they disagree with me. Mm-hmm. Nobody can do that. Right. Okay. So, uh, but I think one of those questions that came afterwards involves this a bit, too, right? What's the next question, she asks? Uh, she said, uh, well, you may have kind of answered this, Father, but she says, if a pope is not protecting sacred tradition, are we obliged to follow him? But also, who determines whether or not he is following sacred tradition? Well, first of all, we as Catholics always have to follow sacred tradition, because sacred tradition is the work of the Holy Ghost. We have to follow sacred tradition as much as we have to follow sacred scripture. We can't deny sacred scripture. <clears throat> we can't deny Catholic tradition. They did if a pope did renounce a Catholic tradition, he would be denouncing the work of the Holy Ghost in the Church. He'd be basically denying his own office. Um, so, you know, obviously it's a contradiction in terms for him to do that. Uh, but sacred tradition is the work of the Holy Ghost in the Church. Um, and it is um, actually above the authority of all the popes put together because the papacy actually... Uh, is a function of Catholic tradition. And uh, the papacy was established by Christ precisely to have that influence of the Holy Ghost to guide the Pope in making the decisions of what Catholics are to believe and how Catholics are to practice their faith in the religion, Catholic religion. If a Pope is not only, uh, well, if he's, if he's not doing that himself and setting a bad example, but if he's actually teaching contrary to it, and trying to convince Catholics to uh, abandon the faith, to deny their faith, to not to practice the true Catholic religion. If he's trying to convince them to practice a substitute religion, even inventing a new religion for them, which is not the Catholic religion that has come down to us through the centuries of tradition, then clearly, uh, not only can you not follow him, but St. Robert Bellarmine talks about the eventuality of a pope doing things that would be dam- damaging to souls and hurtful to the church. And in that case, St. Robert Bellarmine doesn't hesitate to say, in that case, you must not. You must not obey him. You must not obey him. And you, you, sh- you must not um, obey his commands, and you must what, do what you can to impede the execution of his will. In other words, to prevent him from being obeyed by others. That's your obligation as a Catholic. I mean, the, the subject even came up about a pope becoming a schismatic. You know, usually people think about schism as being breaking off from a pope. But the pope actually can become a schismatic if he breaks with the church. If he will not uh, worship with or, um, you know, practice the faith with those who actually are believing and who are practicing the faith. For example, think if you had a pope who said, I will not be in communion with traditional Catholics. I will suppress that, and anyone who still holds to the traditional Catholic faith and religion, I am not in communion with them. He'd be a schismatic. I'm not just making that up. I mean, uh, Bishop Graber basically said that. If a pope would want to change or try to change all of the sacramental rites of the church, he would become a schismatic. So it's not just a layperson who can become a schismatic or a priest or a bishop. The Pope himself can cut himself off from the church if he rejects the faith and rejects the religion, the practice of the religion.
In fact, you might say he'd be a heretic if he cut himself off from the faith. He'd be a schismatic if he cut himself off from the practice, the practice of the faith, the religion. That's simplifying it, but <clears throat> and um, you know, one might think, well, you know, does that apply to Francis? Well, I believe it does. Yes, I believe it's made it very clear what his intentions are. But I, I mean, I, as I say, uh, from past discussions of this, I, I don't think Francis has lost the papacy. I just don't think he ever had it. Because, as I said, uh, you know, uh, Pope has to formally accept the office, so th such that if, if even uh, you had a uh, unanimous vote of the, of the College of Cardinals naming you the Pope, you would not be the Pope by virtue of that vote. You have to accept it. It's a decision you have to make, and you can refuse it. Pope Pius X, St. Pius X, had that decision to make. And he was wavering, and <clears throat> Cardinal Mary Del Valle gave him comfort and courage to go ahead and accept the, the office. But not until he accepted it did he actually become the Pope. But in the case of Francis, you have a man who does not believe in the papacy, not as the Church teaches it, not as the Church has always believed it to be. His concept of the papacy is very different, even contrary to the Catholic teaching on the papacy. So how could he formally accept an office he doesn't even believe in? That's a question I'd like answered, but nobody else seems to be interested in it. I think it's very important, actually, because I think it actually helps resolve some serious issues people have. And kind of, I think before people start asking, well, did Francis lose the papacy by teaching this? Did Francis lose the papacy by teaching that? I think they have to ask the question, well, did he ever actually become the Pope? Because he doesn't believe in the papacy. Not as the church understands it to be. He has actually made statements about the office of the papacy. Uh, on the 50th anniversary of, of this synodal thing that Paul VI did, setting up synods, you know, and now Francis wants to make it a synodal church, ruled by synods, governed by synods, uh, including lay people and lower clergy and bishops and so on. And ultimately, uh, under the Pope, but under him in what way? Well, Francis described that. In the document he issued explaining the synodal way, the synodal path, and what he means by it, he actually explained what the Pope does, and who a Pope is, what his office is, what his responsibility is. Well, it's what the modernists say. It's not what the Catholics say. So, anyway... I don't know if that answers any more of the question there or not. Huh? Sure, I think so, Father. I think we could um, move on to another email that had a, a related question maybe that follows mm -hmm. um, from a viewer who said, Father, what are we to think concerning those who say that Vatican II, post-Vatican II popes lost their papal office before God but retain it before men since the world recognizes them as popes? <clears throat> what do we say about that? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know who says that, but I wouldn't say it. Uh, that how could they, what kind of a, a, a charade would that be, right? What kind of a, a disguise would it be for a man to be uh, regarded as the vicar of Christ on earth by men when he is not before God, yeah. right? But he's not acknowledged as a pope or the vicar of Christ on earth and does therefore not have the powers 
or the uh, of infall- the charisms of, of infallibility that a pope must have if he speaks ex cathedra, right? And uh, does not have the authority to command, but everybody thinks he, he does on earth. What a travesty that would be. Would that not be tantamount to saying that Christ's promise has failed, I will be with you all days, even under the consummation of the world? If that kind of a, a very um, evil charade would be, and, and who, would, God, would God do that? Would God do that? Could, could people actually, could the Catholic people actually accept as Pope, follow someone as Pope who really isn't, in the eyes of God, Pope? Let's face it, if he's not Pope in the eyes of God, he's not, if he's not the vicar of Christ in the eyes of God, he's not the vicar of Christ. He's not the Pope. So would Satan not have triumphed over the church if he could deceive all the Catholic faithful into following a false pope? So I don't see how one could say that, at least not the universality of the faithful, uh, some, some could be deceived, certainly. Um, some very holy people could be deceived, like during the Great Western Schism, when you had the real pope in Rome, but the French cardinals had so confused things so that they set up a, another pap- a papal candidate in Avignon, and because it was the same cardinals who elected both, claiming that the first one they elected, they were basically elected because of fear, it didn't count, um, there actually were saints who were divided, They're one going to one and going to the other. It was so confusing that the church doesn't even consider uh, them schismatics and doesn't even consider them anti-popes because of the confusion, confusion of the situation. But I mean, uh, you know, that was the, all the Catholic faithful were not deceived by that. Furthermore, or even during that time, um, the faith didn't change. The faith remained exactly the same, and the religion, the Catholic religion, remained the same for everyone. So they were all believing the same faith, and they were all practicing the same religion. It's just a matter of who is the true pope. They needed God to resolve this, and eventually he did. And uh, it was resolved in 1415 with the election of of, uh, Martin V, who was actually a very great pope. And uh, God raised him up to heal the wounds, and he really did. It's remarkable. So when, humanly speaking, all was lost, it wasn't. That's how they thought when they laid Christ's body in the tomb. When they took it down to the cross, they thought all was lost. But with God, there's no such thing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's no such thing. Mm-hmm. So anyway, and we have to remember that today, too. We see the situation of the church today. Humanly speaking, uh, we, we can't think of a way to, to make things better, to, to make things turn out right, to solve this problem. But that uh, does not impress God. God is not impressed by our impotence to solve these problems. We have the we have the capacity to create problems ad infinitum, it seems. But uh, God has the problem to God has the power to fix them. Mm-hmm. We cannot create a problem uh, so great that He cannot fix it, except losing our souls going to hell. And then, uh, I guess that really is the fix of divine justice, right? It does serve the purpose of divine justice right there. Yep. So anyway, um, so in answer to that question, I would say uh, some of the Catholic faithful can be deceived, uh, 
But it's impossible that all of the Catholic faithful would be deceived. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, those who have the right principles and um, care enough and really want to be faithful, Christ will guide them to the truth. They'll, they'll know. Mm -hmm. Father, could we uh, spend the last part of the program getting um, your reaction to uh, Francis's uh, attempt at a consecration to the Immaculate Heart of Mary uh, just took place this past this past Friday, I know we, we talked about it some uh, before it actually happened, we read through the text, but now this has actually taken place. Um, what, what's your reaction to this? Mm -hmm. Well, it, wasn't, it certainly wasn't the consecration uh, asked for by Our Lady of Fatima. And in fact, it didn't even refer to Our Lady of Fatima at all. Um, finally, there was a consecration of humanity. Well, the church, humanity, and uh, Russia and Ukraine to the Immaculate Heart. But um, that, again, was no more the actual consecration that Our Lady asked for at Fatima than was the consecration, well, I mean, you, know, you read the consecration as we did, uh, done by Pope Pius XII in 1942 during World War II. Uh, Lucia said that the consecration as done by Pope Pius XII in 1942 was not the consecration that heaven had asked for. But it still pleased God, and she said that the days of World War II would be shortened because of that. But if you read the act of consecration uh, done by Pope Pius XII in 1942, you realize, well, if that wasn't exactly the consecration that heaven had asked for, then by the same token, what Francis did uh, a few days ago certainly was no more uh, a real consecration. And this is a, a bit of a conundrum because, um, you know, John Paul II actually had a kind of consecration of the world to the Immaculate Heart, I think it was in 1984. And Lucia, or at least Lucia, the one regarded by the world as Lucia at the time, actually came out and said, well, that's the consecration. That's the one. That's the one that Our Lady asked for at Fatima. But the Lucia, who back in 1942, who was speaking of Pope Pius XII's consecration, said that's not, that's not it. That's not the one. But if you compare, I mean, essentially, at that time, Pope Pius XII consecrated the world to Our Lady's Immaculate Heart, as John Paul II did. But I mean, Pope Pius XII even made a, a, a reference to Russia without naming it in his consecration which John, the 20th, John, uh, uh, John Paul II did not. So, if anything, the consecration done by Pius XII in 1942 was closer to the consecration asked for by Our Lady than anything John Paul II did. So, did Lucia change her mind, or did heaven change its mind, or was there some discrepancy uh, between the, this Lucy said and what that Lucy said? You know, there's a big controversy going on about that. And the more you read about it, the more you realize why it's so controversial. Um, but um, in any case, certainly what Francis did is not the consecration. I mean, I'm even just, just, what should I say, abstracting from the whole question of pap Francis's papacy. Right? I'm just abstracting from that entire question because obviously uh, for those who are certain that he's not the Pope, then this is all moot. It, it, it doesn't matter, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but for those who 
think he is or wish he were, um, they would have an interest in, in knowing whether that consecration really does correspond to what Our Lady asked. The answer is absolutely not. It doesn't. Um, you know, uh, Our Lady of Fatima was talking about conversion. She was talking about conversion. She even said, you know, uh, the, if, if the Holy Father does con consecrate Russia to my Immaculate Heart, Russia will be converted. There's no talk about conversion. In anything Francis said, no talk of conversion at all. Of the Ukraine, of Russia, of the world, of humanity. No talk of conversion. Why would he have the talk of conversion? Because he's a modernist. He believes you can be saved by practicing any religion or no religion. So why would you convert? Um, he's already made that point. But he, you know, he, conversion is a kind of uh, proselytism, and we've got to reject that whole concept. Um, so in his, in his uh, so-called consecration, as you referred to it, rightly so, there's no mention of consecration, of, of conversion. Read the consecration done by Pope Pius XII in, in 1942, and he talks about the conversion of the nations to Christ, the conversion of nations, recognition of the kingship of Christ. He talks about that conversion. Francis doesn't do that. I don't think John Paul II did either. No mention of conversion. How can that possibly be the consecration that Our Lady asked for? When she here spoke of conversion, the conversion of nations, rather than the perversion of nations that was taking place. So, uh, in any case, uh, Tom, uh, I, I think people have to face reality here that although it seemed very pious or pietistic, it, it was certainly not uh, by any means, a consecration asked for by Our Lady. <clears throat> Essentially, he got the entire social program of the left in there, uh, from global warming and ecology, taking care of the earth, to, uh, you know, uh, immigration, illegal immigration. He was touting all of those things and quoting that, that those were the sins we're committing, right? Those are the sins now that we have to regret and to apologize for. Um, so... In any case, um, no, it's the work of a modernist and a leftist. Um, but it's, it's really kind of frightening in a way how it can be made to sound so pious that it, it can, well, it could deceive even the elect. Mm -hmm. As the expression goes in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, to, but God gives the grace to those who will see. That, uh, he shows them what the truth is. Father, why do you think uh, Francis made this act? Was this, do you think, some kind of deceit that he was trying to deceive, uh, you know, those who may, may be on the fence, maybe not sure about him? What, what was his purpose behind this? Well, ostensibly, because of the, uh, the conflict uh, with the Russian invasion of the Ukraine and the Ukrainian bishops asking him to make that consecration. He was responding to their requests. What his motive was, why he actually decided to do it then and there, I, I assume he had several motives. One of them might have been, this was an opportunity because the Ukrainian bishops uh, um, approached him with that request. Um, and I imagine he was trying to make some kind of a, 
convey some kind of an understanding about this conflict between Russia and U Ukraine and uh, kind of position it uh, in people's minds to regard it in a certain way that it could be, again, used by the left, by the World Economic Forum uh, and all of the people associated with this great reset to move forward. I mean, it, Ukraine has been a base of very heavy Nazi, National Socialist uh, activity and forces for quite some time. Azov, which had Mariupol, uh, uh, until the Russians just succeeded basically in taking the city. Uh, Azov is a dyed-in-the-wool Nazi organization. Um, they've been very active in Ukraine okay, for years and years now. And after World War II, I mean, the Nazis actually, uh, well, they had a real stronghold there in Ukraine. And um, the, uh, you know, the painting, uh, the uh, leader of the Ukraine, Zelensky, is some great national hero when he's, he acts certainly like a Nazi. I mean, as a politician, when he got in power, he suppressed all the opposition parties took control of all of the television uh, broadcasting stations, right? Um, he took control of all of the media there. In other words, the totalitarianism that he was exercising in the Ukraine uh, would be very appealing to our leftist uh, dictators here in, in, the, in, the, in the West. You know, our aspiring tyrants uh, like... Uh, would dream of having the power of doing what Zelensky did in Ukraine, taking such complete control. Uh, so when they're holding him up as, as some great champion of democracy, it's ludicrous. When you read about his tenure of control as an authoritarian over the, the poor people of the Ukraine, you know, you pity them being caught in this, but they're being used as pawns in this terrible game. Suffering terribly, but uh, but uh, I, I do believe that the leftists here are touting Zelensky because he's essentially the, the type of despot that they would like to be themselves and like to install everywhere. But uh, you know, it just amazes me, though, Tom. I mean, we have conservatives in this country who have enough of a grasp about the dissent of the media and they in just events in, in recent years uh, have come to see the media as basically a lie machine and a propaganda machine for the left and yet and yet we have this invasion of U Ukraine by Russia and we see all of this all of this um, media interest and constant drumming on this. They, they were drumming on the virus, they were drumming on uh, the truckers' convoy, and all. they were dr drumming and drumming away on these things. And we recognized that at that time that this was propaganda. But for some reason the conservatives almost snapped to attention when the same media uh, starts pontificating about what's going on in the Ukraine and claiming we're representing this accurately. You can trust us to tell you what's really going on over there, what's really at stake over there. And, and it's amazing how the conservatives are all, all ready to just line up and uh, follow the marching orders of the, the same media they, they recognized as being just a, 
just professional liars. How is that possible? I mean, well, I guess Stalin was right, Lenin and so on. You just tell a lie often enough and uh, insistently enough, and it becomes the truth. By default, essentially, right? In the minds of people. And uh, there aren't that many media outlets that are, who are really telling uh, the whole story there about the, the Nazi uh, propaganda and the, the Nazi, uh, um, which they say, dominion there in, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, they're just telling uh, the narrative. Right? And we have to be very wary of the media's narrative. You'd be immediately suspicious of it. Look for other sources of news. Hopefully, uh, you know, we can trust. Hopefully there will be such. <laughs> so, bottom line is, uh, something certainly is afoot over there. And we do have to pray for them. Especially for the people who are caught in the middle of this. There's, they are suffering terribly. Um, by, and I do believe that they're being used uh, for some kind of global objective by the left. Um, there are those who, who've spoken and written about this rather convincingly, about exactly how this is serving the purpose of the left. If, if, well, one thing, look at the energy crisis we're having now, that we're getting used to the idea. What, what, was, what were we being told by uh, government officials and the media? Well, if you don't like paying $4 or more for gasoline, for a gallon of gasoline, get an electric car. I mean, they're pushing us in that direction anyway. But this, uh, as one pundit said, that's like saying, well, let them eat cake, <laughs> you know. Sure, let them go ahead and eat cake if they can't, if they can't buy bread. Go buy an electric car. And then you see the electric cars lined up down the block to get charged, <laughs> uh, to get recharged. And you realize, again, just a method of control. So uh, they're, they're attacking uh, a whole way of life, a whole way of life, you know, a whole like status quo, because they want to re remake the earth or reset the life of every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. Ever hear of a man named Harari, H-R-A-R-I? He's a Jewish uh, homosexual professor of history. He's a darling of the World Economic Forum. He's a darling of those who want to who want to brand through the Great Reset. He's like the guru. He's like the high priest. He's like the shaman of of the you know uh, Schwab and and the rest of that whole crowd recognize him as some sort of like oracle for the Great Reset. And this man is uh, getting up at the uh, World Economic Forums year after year and uh, lecturing about how. Uh, we need a total surveillance state. Now, though, we, not, we can not only uh, surveil the way people live, uh, we can not only uh, actually monitor their, their, their way of life up to the skin, now we can get under the skin and we can now monitor and control their thoughts. He's saying this is good. He's telling them this is what we have to do. We have to do this and we can do this now. Uh, we can re-engineer humanity. We can re-engineer life itself, he said. We are acquiring divine, divine powers, he says. Uh, this man is scary Harari. I mean, he, he is a really, really dangerous man out there. But he's dangerous only insofar as 
there are people who are listening to him and taking him seriously, and they have money behind them. And of, of course, they have more than that. They have the powers of hell behind them. They want to create a hell on earth and claim every soul for hell. Um, this is essentially what this man is arguing for. Uh, wants to destroy any faith in, in God, as we know God to be the supreme being who created all things, who created life, and wants to put uh, basically his own creation on the, the throne of God and have them rule the world. And actually, uh, you know, does God, does God control every thought in your mind? No, he gives you free will, right? But they want, they want to have the power to not only monitor every thought in your mind, they want to have the power to control every thought in your mind. He said, this is what past tyrants have only dreamed of. Now it is within our grasp to have that. He doesn't beat around the bush at all. He gets right to the point. And uh, they're applauding him because this is exactly what they want to do. Uh, so anyway... Uh, this is what we're up against, but we know that the ultimate uh, cause of all this is because of our sins. Because of our sins, we have actually um, turned away from our Lord, and uh, basically, by sin, we proclaim Satan our Lord because we're obeying him. This is the consequence of what sin does to us. Sin brought death into the world, and now it's bringing this. So what Our Lady told us at Fatima applies as much now, or maybe more now than ever before. We, we desperately need to stop offending God by sin, and we desperately need to start making reparation, and I offer that reparation through the Immaculate Heart of Mary. I know that's your closing message of the program, so this is your <laughs> great opportunity. Well, Father, thanks for being here tonight. Appreciate your time, and I know all of our viewers do as well. So. Oh, certainly, Tom. Thank you. Yep. And thank our viewers, too. Yep, thanks to our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima, to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.